Hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. My name is Jeff Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery field. This podcast is in furtherance of that mission, and on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. I'm very happy today to say that this is a special Veterans Day podcast, and we're going to take a look at some of the special topics that members of our military often face. Issues such as veteran substance use and mental health disorders, as well as suicide, are usually the topics of conversation, as well they should be. But our approach today is on the uniqueness of military life and how that carries over into civilian life. Our guests today are U.S. Army Reserve Captain Lisa Moon and retired Army Colonel Kevin Brown. Lisa Moon, LCSW, ICGC2, and board-approved clinical counselor, was commissioned in 2016 as a captain in the U.S. Army Reserves as a 73A social worker. She is attached to Combat Operational Stress Control Unit in Brockton, Mass. She was recently deployed with an Urban Augmentation Task Force to New York City, providing behavioral health treatment to service members and patients at the Javits Center from March to June of 2020. Her civilian job is Senior Director of Clinical Services at Sound Community Services Incorporated in New London and Norwich locations. Lisa has military experience from other lenses before joining the United States Army Reserves. She was a military spouse for 11 years and went through her husband deploying twice while she kept the home front intact. And she also worked as a civilian providing counseling services to soldiers enrolled in the Army Substance Abuse Program in Kansas City. Retired Colonel Kevin Red Eagle Brown served 25 years as an infantry leader in the United States Army and recently retired as a chairman of the Mohegan Tribe and chairman of the Mohegan Tribal Gaming Authority. After graduating from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in 87, Kevin led our nation's men and women deployed environments at all levels, including Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Operation Southern Watch, and Intrinsic Action in Iraq, Operation Cold Gold in the northern jungles of Thailand, and Operation Iraqi Freedom. He culminated his career as a colonel commanding the garrison at Fort Riley, Kansas, where he led holistic health efforts to sustain the resilience of highly deployed soldiers and their family members before he retired in 2011. He was awarded the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star with three Oak Leaf Clusters, clusters, the Combat Infantry's Badge with a Star for Second Award, multiple other commendations, and is Airborne, Air Assault, Ranger, and Senior Parachutist Qualified. Kevin has a Bachelor of Science of Aerospace Engineering from West Point, a Master of Science in Operations Research from the Naval Postgraduate School, a Master of Arts in Public Diplomacy from Norwich University, and is currently a PhD candidate in Security Studies from Kansas State University. He currently serves on the board of the National Archives Foundation in Washington, D.C., serves as a Strategic Advisor to Veterans and First Responders Healthcare, and was recently seated as the President of CEO of the United States Veterans Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to both of you. I'm honored to be able to have you both here. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. So just as we started, I want to leave it to you two to kind of discuss this. Let's talk about something that's pretty common that that a lot of our listeners wouldn't necessarily understand, and that's some of the issues for vets as they return to civilian life. Reintegration, right? Transition and reintegration. And uh, I think this conversation starts for a lot of folks 
<clears throat> on the on the results or metric side. Everyone knows about the suicide rate. Uh, it's been quoted as being 22 a day. It's been branded, frankly, as 22 a day. And you know that's the net result of poor transition or poor integrate poor reintegration. So look, suicide is important. It's important for us to talk about. But really, what we should be talking about is is the reintegration and transition side of this whole conversation. It's quite profound, you know, to go from military life um, as you know it, with the structure, the discipline, knowing what your day, you know, your day is going to look like, knowing what the mission is, having a chain of command, having all these things to return to a civilian sector, um, people that may not understand you, may not. Um, you know, understand the importance of the structure and the discipline and all the things that you need and feel that you're rigid. Um, so I've had a lot of service members, um, you know, find it, you know, really difficult to kind of transition because they don't feel like anybody gets me kind of thing. One of the things that I see that comes up and, and we talked about briefly before uh, in a different conversation was unit cohesion is very important in the military environment. It's, it's, it's there for a reason. It saves people's lives. It preserves order. Um, in the uh, general society, individuality, especially in the United States of America, is is not only kind of a way of life, but it's it's constitutional, uh, so to speak. So, where do you get the mix of that, and how, and how does that create issues for somebody returning to civilian life? Yeah, that, that certainly is a large part. Probably, probably the central part to this conversation about <clears throat> effective reintegration, right? When you, I mean, let's just go to the very simplistic example of square peg round hole, right? Now, once upon a time, all of all of us that were uh, service members were once that round peg in the round hole, and we shipped off to an environment that, by purpose, by by desire, broke us down, debased us, took us to a new ground roots level, and built us back up to believe in all the things that we've talked about already that, that are an, an important part of being uh, in a unit with cohesion and trust in each other. So, you know, from being the square, the round peg that fit in the round hole, we were suddenly transformed into this square shape, uh, lived it for four years, eight years, 12 years, 20 years plus, and now we have to come back and we've got to kind of round off those edges again, right, and fit back in that round hole. Or, where really the resistance comes from, at least from my opinion, and Lisa can speak to it professionally, but as a, you know, as a peg, as a, <laughs> as a square peg, I can tell you that, you know, there's a little bit of resistance on our part to be rounded off because we believe in what we brought back into this round peg society. So it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do to, to fit back in. Yeah, I, I've seen that time and time again. It's like, well, I'm just going to find people that do get me, you know, so it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, people have been called unfriendly or this or that because they really want to find like-minded people. So you see that gravitation towards, you know, vet associations and different, you know, communities that really are going to support that, that like-mindedness. I mean, they say brothers and sisters in arms, we use battle buddies. I mean, it's like, your battle buddy is, this is your person, you know, these are your people. These are the people that are going to have your back, you know, out in, in battle. So when then you come to the civilian world, it's like, everybody's out for themselves. I mean, you know, in this society, people are going to do for themselves and, you know, it is every man for himself. So it's, it's a little bit different of a mentality. I think when you enter the civilian sector and the trust level with, with people versus these people are in the military with me. They serve with me. They've got my back versus I don't know what I'm dealing with in the civilian world. So it is. 
I mean, look, Jeff, every one of us, no matter which service we served in, wear over our, you know, name tape, we are name tape over our pocket that says U.S. Army or U.S. Air Force or U.S. Marines or U.S. Navy or U.S. Coast Guard. Every day, every single day that we're in uniform, we wear that just as much as we wear our own individual name tag. And, and so just it's like a daily reminder that there is an implicit trust here amongst all of us that we are on the same mission and ready to take care of each other in the completion of that mission. And then, you know, not to overstate it, but when you come home and take that uniform off, what are you wearing? Like, who are you anymore? And are you just about you or, or, or is there something else on your other name tape? And, and what is it? And it's hard, it's really, really hard in today's environment, which I think is kind of your point. It's a very individualistic environment we live in. It's very hard to find something that you proudly would wear over your other, you know, name tape on your other pocket. I think when we look at, there's an irony here that to protect that individuality, people have to give up that individuality and be part of a larger unit uh, with a, uh, a the same mission. And uh, I don't think that's something that's talked about or, or even thought about much. It, it really just came as listening to you both. And I can see that it's, 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 it's a very difficult thing to, to see because your fight and want to protect that individuality but it's not the way you've chosen to live your life in the military. That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, th th maybe the key thing you just said there is right. It was a life choice for all of us. And, and look, we can go, we could probably spend an entire separate hour talking about all of the reasons why each of us made that individual life choice. There are different reasons that we made it. But at the end of the day, we all made that life choice to be part of this thing. And, and here's an overused statement, but it's a true one part of a thing that that was greater than ourselves and had a mission that certainly was bigger than or greater than uh, being about any individual one of us. Right. It's like one of the things that's interesting is somebody who serves like you do in the reserves, going back and forth and back and forth from that individual society that you see in your civilian job um, into the, the time that you spend in your unit uh, on on duty. Is that a difficult transition for you to do? Not so much because I was a civilian for so long first. Um, but, you know, it, it's not about, it's like, look, it's not about me. This is bigger than me. Um, I, I can transition and kind of compartmentalize. Okay, now I'm on drill. I'm with my people. We're on the same mission. We're going to do our duty. There's law and order to it. There's structure. There's um, you know, there's accountability, you know, you have to come back after lunch, you have to, you know, show up in the morning at 0700. Um, so I, I guess I have the ability to kind of flip flop. Um, you know, I've been able to do it, I think, but, but only because I was a civilian for so much longer, I think. Which adds another interesting thing that, that just came to me is generally when individuals join the military, they're very young, they're still adolescents. So, you know, they're 18 to 21. And so they're really forming their life. So the military service creates that life for them. And they don't know any other way. You're in a unique position going on later that you knew another way and then chose this life as well. 
Exactly. Yeah, it does. It does pose a different vantage point. Um, but the military does offer everything. I mean, schooling, um, you know, counseling services, you know, anything that you would need. It's really a whole system of care and support. Uh, you know, the, the chain of command, you know, um, going to your squad leader and then, you know, going all the way up the chain, you know, if you need to get something done or if you're having an issue, it's like family. So it's a totally different thing than, um, you know, the civilian sector. But it, it was different, you know, be, being a military spouse first for the 12 years and then working as a civilian, like in the Army Subsidies Program, I did see, you know, service members kind of grow up, like you said, you know, just with that structure and, um, you know, it did serve people well. It gave them that sense of, you know, camaraderie and, you know, support and things that sometimes family life might not have offered previously. So it is sometimes an opportunity for young folks to kind of find their way. And a lot of folks like do crave that discipline, that structure and things that they didn't have in their family life. So, but I do see it as a different vantage point now that I came in a little bit, well, much later. Yeah. I mean, look, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> and and I didn't say it. So, I, but you know, it's an interesting thing that's going on here, right? We're 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 sort of explaining away why veterans are different and have to reintegrate. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of good things oh, yeah. that living that military life creates in someone in those growth stages of their life. Yes. And and another part of the friction of reintegrating is. You know, back kind of back to my rounding off the edges example. Hey, folks, maybe I won't don't want to round off this edge. Maybe what I want is for you to see this edge and maybe add it to your life. You know, we bring some valuable things back out of that structured and and focused and mission oriented environment. That very very frankly, a lot of po- a lot of folks that haven't lived that lifestyle could use. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it creates workplace friction and it creates family friction because we are a little bit more goal oriented, mission oriented, implicitly trusting, which can be a problem. Right. That that whole implicit trust that we have in each other. If you're wearing the uniform, I don't care if I met you yesterday. If we're going out on patrol today and you were you were introduced into my organization yesterday. Today, I trust you. And I I don't think twice about it because I know that you've been trained the same way I was that you have the same goal in mind, whether it's simple survival or accomplishing the mission, we're, we're both heading in the same direction. You never have to doubt those kind of things with the people around you. That level of implicit trust that you carry day to day while you're wearing the uniform, it can get banged up pretty bad when you re-enter the civilian world. Right. I'm here to tell you. I think it's, it's, it's an interesting thing when you said that the acceptance that to have the general population, the general community kind of accept those edges and embrace that and bring it in. We do a lot of lip service, uh, um, you know, uh, as a community and say how we support veterans and, you know, and all the signs and all things, which is, you know, all well and good. And people do believe that, and they are supporting in their way, but you bring it to a different level that's much more intimate, much more where trust is involved and much more difficult to do, to to understand uh, the issues that somebody who spent so much time in the military uh, and, and loved that lifestyle and, and appreciate everything, the struggles that they go through reintegrating into the, to the general community. Community needs to be able to be more accepting. Yeah. 
And they have to look at it like a, a different culture. Like, you know, we're, we're trained, right, you know, in behavioral health, like, you know, on cultural diversity, all these things. And I don't know that the military is necessarily like put in that mix. It's like it is its own culture and it does have its set of norms and values and discipline and structure and all different kinds of beliefs, the patriotism, you know, just all the things that it represents. And I think and I've seen just being a civilian for so long as a, you know, as a military spouse and then now as a service member that I don't think, I don't know if people are afraid to know or it's too rigid or, or what it is, but I really do find that people aren't as interested in getting to know, like, well, tell me about that edge or why are you so rigid with this idea or that? Um, or why does it have to be just so a certain way for this or that to feel safe or to feel whatever? I think people are intimidated for some reason to kind of get to know the military culture and understand it and understand the ranking system and why the chain of command was important to us or, you know, all those number of topics. Um, it is interesting, but I've seen it time and time again that people sort of are more standoffish to learn about the military. It's easy to say one supports one and does in their own way than it is to really get involved with somebody and ask without judgment. Right. How can I help? Or what yeah. do you need? Or how are you doing? Or, yeah. or tell me about it. You know, it, it look, it's, look, it's awkward. Let's be honest, right? Let's, let's be intellectually transparent. It's, it's difficult on both sides of this equation. It, it, you know, yeah. I'm sitting here as a vet, and so I don't want to come across as sounding like, yeah, you guys got to do a better job understanding me. It's difficult on both sides of the conversation, Absolutely. And, and that's clearly understood. Uh, growing up in a home where my stepfather was retired after 20-something years in the Navy, um, we didn't have a choice but to understand. Because if you were late or if you did this, he would tell you, if you were in the service, that's and that was <laughs> – this is what would happen. And I'd be like, well, I'm your teenage stepson. So this is what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, you know, that, that's funny. The, the word, <clears throat> the word optionality comes to mind. Like, what do you mean? I don't have to go to the meeting or what do you mean? I don't have to like, why well, I have choices. If it's on the training schedule, then I do it. It's that yeah. simple, right? To think that people can actually have individual latitude and optionality and choices on things that, some of us veterans think, no, you don't have a choice. It's, it's been, you've been told there's a meeting, you'll be at it, period, right? Uh, you're you as a 70-year-old stepson, you know, hey, look, I told you to do X, you didn't do it, but that doesn't work here, right? That's not how we operate. Yeah, and because I, when I was younger, you just did it. You just knew, and, and, and that was what, and it always started with, you have to eat that because you put it on your plate. Oh. Don't put it on your plate if you don't want to eat it. <laughs> I'm telling you what, I mean, look, that we're, we are all, we are a product of our experiences, right? And, and until you've been <clears throat> on the 10th day of the long patrol in the mountains of Dahlonega, Georgia for ranger school, and you're out of food on the, it, it, let's say you're on the sixth day and you're already out of food and you got four days to go, you realize real fast, like I will never take something as simple as food or rest for granted again the rest of my life. And when I see people doing it, it's it can be maddening. I mean, it's the, it's the classic story, right, of standing in the Starbucks line behind the guy in front of you who's complaining because his latte is cool, right? <laughs> Whereas for us veterans, uh, cold coffee is sometimes par for the course. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it, what it does, too, is it creates another level of appreciation for the things that really matter. 
Yeah. Well, look, so now you're going to kick me into my Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, thing, right? I mean, I've always had this cereal box rendition. And if there's any, any listeners out there who've seen me on a podium, you may have heard this before. But I think it really explains a lot of what we're talking about right now, because, you know, Maslow's hierarchy says you start with your foundational needs of existence, food, water, safety, shelter, right? Then you work up to the next level up, which is relational uh, things, family, friends, lovers, wives. Then you move up to the top, which is growth, self-actualization, mission, higher purpose, right? And as you think about it, for a veteran, for a serving soldier, sailor, airman, marine, or coast guardsman, or for a veteran of, you got to flip that thing upside down because, you know, start back at the bottom. Existence needs, they are, they are expected to be forsaken when you throw on the uniform and go into harm's way and deploy over and over again and go hours and days without sleep or rest or otherwise. So that, that's now a pinpoint at the bottom of Maslow's you know, pyramid instead of a broad-based foundation. You go up to the next level where you talk about relationships. Lisa said earlier, you, you create a new family. It's not, so you don't lose the, the, the width of that part of the pyramid. You still have it, but it's, it's reshapen. It's reformed. It's different people. It's not the traditional family and friends that you left back home. It's this, it's the five folks in your Humvee or the, or the 80 people in your part of the ship that you're on for six months at a time or whatever. Those become the tighter knit relationships that you have. Then you move up to the next level, which is supposed to be a small pyramid of, I've reached the top, right? And I'm thinking about something bigger than myself when actually in the, in the veterans upside down pyramid, it's broad. It's, it, 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 it overrides everything that you are and think that you are and think about doing and, and have to do every day to, to be successful. And so if you want to draw that, that analogy out for one last step, if you're a veteran and you're living in an inverted uh, Maslow's pyramid where you've forsaken yourself, but but leaned heavily on the mission, uh, that's not quite as stable as the pyramid that we all learned about. So that thing could tip over in a moment. What keeps it balanced? All the boys and girls around you that are serving with you. You take that pyramid out of service, you set it back in civilian society. And if somebody's not there to keep it from toppling over, we have the problems that we're all talking about. It sounds as if you're saying you're ahead of the game in some respects, but behind in some respects, because you've already reached what people go for. You start out with the base of a mission, a higher purpose, and so many people try to reach that. But as it is, if it was the other way, it's very thin point. What relies is that is your brothers and sisters in arms that are there experiencing with it. It provides the base. So it's right. not you. It's, it's the entire unit. That keeps that thing, you know, upright. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, put reintegration right in a, in a, in a nutshell. I mean, it's, you know, square peg, round hole, upside down pyramid. It's, it's, it's difficult, difficult task. One of the things we talked about in our conversation the other day was about individuals and service persons deployed over and over again and kind of what happens to that. And I think that you're both really, uh, well positioned to talk about this kevin you talked about the nerf ball versus the soda can yeah um, yeah well i mean look you know these days right it's not uncommon to hear of someone who's deployed seven eight nine ten times uh you know look my, my old man you might remember jeff he was a three-war veteran he was world war ii korea and vietnam yeah. and and 
never, except maybe in the later years of Vietnam, never did he go knowing that he was coming back in, you know, 365 days, right? Uh, or 410 for a 15 month deployment, that kind of thing. You just, you just went when you went and you came back when you came back. But none of those conflicts were as protracted as what we've been through for the last 20 years. Right. So you've got young men and women who have deployed seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times. We aren't Nerf balls. You know, you, you can't, if you consider each deployment one squeeze to the Nerf ball, you let go of that Nerf ball, it pops right back into shape. You can do it three times, you can do it 10 times, you can do it 100 times. That Nerf ball regains its shape. Human beings are not like Nerf balls. Every time you squeeze that thing, it comes back a little misshapen. And the example I gave you that I use is like, a, like an aluminum can. You squeeze an aluminum can when it's empty, you can kind of pull it back into shape it, it, and it'll, you know, you'll have a top and a bottom and still kind of see it, but now it's got some dents that you just never can really get back out. You squeeze it down again and pull it back into shape again. You keep doing that. After about seven times, that thing does not look like an aluminum can anymore. And you can almost, in some cases, with aluminum can't just rip it in half like a piece of paper. But we're more like those aluminum cans. And so while we can show the world that we're back from deployment and we've popped ourselves back into shape, there are, I don't care who you are, and, and this, is a, this is a fixed opinion, and I'll listen to others who feel differently. <laughs> we have a social worker on the line who will tell me to shush at any moment, but I don't care who you are, you, you cannot, I don't believe, if you're being fully honest with yourself, say that you suffered absolutely no trace of post-traumatic stress after a number of deployments. It's just not possible. And if you, if you believe it, I think you're probably kind of kidding yourself because, you know, go to the aluminum can example. After that first crush and reshaping, there's something different. You might not recognize it, but it's there. It's there. I, I agree with you, Kevin. Um, even if it's not so obvious that, you know, you have triggers and this and that, and it's, it's highly identifiable, let's say, but maybe now when you go to restaurants, you know, you have to sit so you could see, you know, compl- you know, I know a lot of service members have to see everything. So you make these little adjustments in your life that, you, you know, you're not saying, oh, I don't, I don't have nightmares. I don't have flashbacks, but you do these little things to kind of overcompensate for being, being triggered or being traumatized at some point in your life. When I deployed to the Javits center, um, there were service members. We're talking about providers, doctors, nurses, medics that were kind of like re-traumatized and they were so shocked. They're like, this is a different mission. This is what I do. I am medical. Like, why am I like having this stuff happen to me? You know, when, you know, from being deployed overseas, you know, this is totally different. Like I do work in an ER, you know, and a lot of people, you know, in mortuary affairs officers and, and other people that I treated, they were almost like surprised that they were kind of having like a resurgence of symptoms because we're not on the battlefield. Like I work in this field. So, you know, you just never know, you know, how you're affected. You know, and Lisa, when you and I were talking about that the other day, I think the thing that that surfaced was, and what probably was happening to those folks is, we recognized that we learned very quickly to compartmentalize and to marginalize emotions and get on with the mission. And, and later, I'll unpack my emotions, right? And so for some of those folks, I'd venture to say that it's been a while since they were put back in that sort of environment. And that was probably some of the trigger they, was, they were feeling that, oh man, here I go again, I'm doing this thing where I, I just got to... I mean, I can't even imagine being a COVID nurse or doctor in, in the Javits Center in the middle of New York City during all this. But but what I can imagine is that's what they had to do. They just had to focus on the mission and they couldn't feel or think or be concerned for their own protection or anything else. They just had to accomplish the mission. And then probably found themselves sitting back after all that going, ooh, this is similar, right? <laughs> 
been yeah. here before. Yeah. Talking different battlefield, right? <laughs> right. Right. Earlier this morning, I was talking to uh, an individual who just had produced the movie about trauma, addiction and trauma. And um, I, I was, she's an old colleague of mine and we were talking a little bit about the movie, but mostly about trauma. And much of it is, is what you described, Kevin, is that we as a society have a view of trauma as being something very specific when it's much more fluid than we expected. You know, if you were abused as a child, certainly that's traumatic, but we don't look at some of the other things. And if we're just looking at general community, poverty is traumatic for individuals. They don't know, but it changes them in some way. Individuals who are incarcerated coming back to the world create some sort of trauma. I'm not putting judgment on it, but it's just coming back into civilian society. If you've been in a forward area, if you've seen, been put in the line of danger, that in itself is it's, it's traumatic and it may trigger some of the other things that you've experienced. Watching someone that you go to battle with die. Why would that not be considered extremely traumatic, given the yeah. trust and everything? Yeah, well, you know, and, and I'll, I'll make a plug for, for what Lisa does. Um, I mean, certainly in, in your day-to-day -day job, but in your military reserve job, uh, the Combat Operational Stress Command, that what, we used, what we used to call on deployment, the, the critical stress debriefing teams, I, they're so important to get after what you're talking about. You know, one of the ways, one of the ways to help Soldiers be resilient and cope. And I, I'm sorry, I was very parochial. Not just soldiers, Marines too, <laughs> Airmen too, uh, Seamen too, Coast Guardsmen too. Uh, but one of the ways to help those folks cope and be resilient is this this idea of what what the COSC does or what the critical stress debriefing teams do, which is uh, you know to be honest with you, if I could draw another parallel. Hell, that's what they taught us in ranger school when, we, when they taught us how to do a, a recon and surveillance patrol. And that is do a cloverleaf around the objective that you're observing so you get multiple vantage points. If you go look at something and you look through your binos, your night vision devices from one place and then go back and report on it, it's going to be a bad report because it's one vantage point. They teach you in ranger school to do multiple vantage points in a cloverleaf, come back and then take your report back. That's what these critical stress debriefing teams and COSCs do. They allow someone who's been through a traumatic event to see it from multiple vantage points, from everybody else's point of view, from a point of view that you might not have surfaced on your own. And it, and it helps make these traumatic experiences at least a little more un understandable, right? And so then, then when the time comes for you to reintegrate, you're not carrying this heavy load of the way you saw it, only the way you saw it. So I, you know, what, what Lisa's teams do uh, deployed, and I would suggest, right, what you saw and did in the COSC environment in the Javits Center, I mean, it's enormously valuable to, to providing some level of resilience. And in fact, part of our mission was to exactly what you're talking, do battle circulations. Like, you know, if we were to go downrange or in the Javits Center, we were asked to walk around the Javits Center, get the tempo. How are people doing? Are they stressed out? They're doing 12, 15 hour shifts before other reserve units came in. So the people that were first at the Javits Center, they were exhausted. They were wearing the N95 all day. Uh, you know, no sleep. They had to wake up, walk back to the Javits Center, do it all again. You can only go within these few streets. I mean, it was it was tough for them, um, but, you know, getting that pulse of like what's going on with the unit. So our job would be downrange a commander to say to us, like, you know, just see what's going on. And we would do the you know, be able to do those battle circulations to kind of 
get the tempo? How are people doing? Do they need help? What, what classes do they need? What preventative stuff can we do? So those, those are kind of our missions too, is doing that preventative work wherever we are. Lisa, and I direct this question to you because it, it kind of fits with your position. Uh, what about the vicarious trauma that individuals like yourself can receive from hearing of others' trauma, of experiencing the struggles and, and being a part of the struggles that others are having? You, you know, you, they may be directed towards you. You may be simply hearing of them. But to say that you're devoid of any difficulties with that would be ridiculous, I think. No, you're absolutely right. So, you know, we have to take care of ourselves, too. Um, you know, I encourage therapists to be in therapy also and just, you know, take care of what's coming up for you as well, because it is a real thing. Um, you know, talking with your colleagues, um, there's difficult stories, you know, tra traumatic stories that I've heard over my career that I might have had to, like, deal with with my supervisor. So, um, I, you know, I've learned to compartmentalize a lot easier as, you know, as I got older and older in the field and learn to take care of yourself better and figuring out, um, you know, if I need supervision, let's say on a particular case that it was difficult to hear. Um, so no, I mean, providers have to take care of themselves also. And that's exactly what I was seeing at the Javits Center. It's like, you know, they're just in go mood. They're, they're treating patients. So it's like then when they get home and they can't sleep for hours and hours because maybe the COVID patient that they've been taking care of passed away, you know, and, and it's like, how are you going to go to sleep at night? Like, you know, you're human. Um, so there's a lot that people see and we just have to remind providers like you have to take care of yourself, like the, the help for the helpers kind of thing. You have to take care of yourself as well. Or you won't make it in this field very long. <laughs> I learned that early, yeah, yeah. in this field. And yeah. one of the things that, especially in our, in our country at this time, that is a stark difference between military life and civilian life is the wide range of values and morals or lack thereof, as you would say, <laughs> you could see in our society where people are just all over the place and are at each other's throats about it, where you come from an environment where everybody has kind of a shared sense of values um, because you learn those, you believe in those, you fight for those um, and they guide every, your mission every day. This, what are the kind of things that you would see from someone who comes back and all of a sudden they're just inundated with these opinions and name calling and just, and it's the country that they fought for or served. I mean, it's shocking. I, I'm you know, I've worked with those members where I don't know how they're going to integrate back into civilian life. You know, they hate civilians almost, you know, no, I'm joking, but um, you know, because they just, it's just totally different sometimes. Uh, I, I think Kevin could probably speak more to this topic. Well, I, you know, look, have you seen the movie, the, the Hurt Locker or yeah. heard of it? All right. So that was a much maligned movie in a lot of veteran circles because there's a lot of stuff that was sensationalized. Like there's no there's no one EOD rep, explosive ordnance test rep running around all over like a cowboy doing that stuff on his own. Like, but, but aside from the sort of the technical, you know, sense of, sense of sensationalization, there was a scene in that movie that I think kind of captures it a little bit about coming back and living in a in a society that has you know, as I talked about before, optionality or so many more choices than you ever had. And here's this guy, right, who's had to make, but the movie, you know, again, you can laugh at the movie, but th this this one scene in it for me is very poignant and, and for me made the whole movie. The rest of the movie could have sucked. But when the guy is standing in the cereal aisle and they, they the cinematography was awesome, they've got this entire aisle with 150 different choices of cereal. 
and he's standing there looking at it. He's about to lose his mind because he's like, why do people even have the choice of 150 different cereals? This is ridiculous, right? You can, he doesn't say any of that, but you can sense that's what's going on in his mind because a month before he had to figure out whether to cut the blue wire or the red wire or the IED would have blown up and his life would have been over. Right. So, you know, th- this, this thing about, you know, coming back and, and living in a world with a different code, a different way of looking at things, that, that scene from that movie kind of spells it out for me. And, and, it, and it's sort of a repeated message, I think, in, in this podcast for me. And that is, you know, optionality and choices, they're kind of limited when you're in service. Uh, but to something you said earlier, Jeff, they're super focused. I mean, they're, they're purposeful. The choices you make when you're in service are purposeful and they support the mission. Whereas now I'm home in this civilian environment and I have choices that I don't even want to have. Like, why do I even have, you know, so that that's one way I think I can kind of describe for you that, how that friction comes about. That Our culture a- didn't start really talking about the veteran experience coming home until movies like coming home, like the deer hunter, um, where you would see that jackknife, which I'll, I'll mention because it was filmed in Meriden near our offices. Um, the difficulties that people experience and jackknife was a great one because you had um, Robert De Niro was doing everything he could to kind of adjust and to get by and was doing okay. But his, his mate from battle, he was struggling and, and just couldn't do it. And then De Niro at one point, you know, shows him, look, I'm this close too. I'm just holding it together by a thread. Um, but I but you can do it. Right. What's that? You can do it. The message is, but you can do it. Yeah. He's driving the truck. He says, you want to, you know, you want to die. I'll, I'm right there with you, but you know, I'm this close, but I need you to help me. So, uh, so that we can both be better. Right. The other point I wanted to make, so he was uh, Kevin was talking about choice, but the other thing I noticed because just in even going to drill and then coming back home is like how much of a difference I noticed with civilians and how low of a tolerance we have for being uncomfortable. I have like the tiniest headache. I'll have an Advil, you know, um, you know, I'm a little cold, so I need to put on my, you know, it's just, it's just so interesting. Um, but like the tolerance level for being uncomfortable, um, you know, cause a lot of service members, it's like, you don't know when you're getting a hot coffee. So you take the cold coffee, like Kevin was talking about before. And, you know, and then, and then I think the, the trouble that people have it reintegrating. And then, you know, like you said, then you're in a Starbucks, somebody's complaining, somebody made their coffee wrong. It's like, be grateful you have a hot coffee for God's sakes. You know? um, right. Yeah. You know, part of the, when you go back to something that's ancient in Sun Tzu's Art of War, where he says, roughly, if you know your enemy and know yourself, you'll don't feel the result of a thousand battles. We in the general society don't do that. We don't necessarily even know ourselves, and we don't think about the situation. And it ties into what you were saying, Kevin, about the, what they taught you in Ranger School, about kind of mm-hmm. taking that cloverleaf view from different Multiple points. viewpoints. If we did that in our everyday lives, which is a great skill, we'd be better handled to equipped oh, we're going to be a little cold or we're going to be, and it just would be, oh, you deal with it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so look, you know, to some, I said earlier, just, just hearing you read that back at us, Jeff is, is just a reminder to me as well that, you know, we got to, we got to meet in the middle, right? This, this veteran subculture and the civilian population that we're trying to reintegrate into, we got to meet in the middle. We, we, we have to control that in ourselves, you know, that the fact that we live down here at the bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy and our existence needs doesn't make everybody else wrong that they don't live there. Um, we wish they'd meet us in the middle. We, you know, 
they probably wish that we'd meet them. I don't know, maybe all the way over. <laughs> but, but, but there's got to be coffee. A, there's got to be a meeting in there somewhere of, of expectations and understanding. I, that's a great way to kind of wrap all this up. Is that, like you said at the very beginning, Lisa, we talk about cultural competence in this field. We can't forget that that veteran subculture is a culture unto itself. And just some awareness, even the awareness, and I hope we were able to do that today, provide some awareness to people. Um, that's the first step in understanding. We have to see and, and appreciate the differences um, and, and learn from each side. You know, there were things that, that you both said today that I listened and immediate, had immediate kind of intellectual responses to. And to me, that's important because I get to look at things differently. Um, and get different perspectives. So um, anything to add before we close? Um, certainly a Veterans Day wish to both of you um, and to everyone that's listening. Um, and I thank you both for your time and really appreciate everything that you had to offer. Thanks, Jeff. I, I just, you know, I, to, to your point about culture, I think it does circle the whole conversation. Um, and, you know, Sebastian Younger, I don't know if you've seen or read any of his stuff, but he spent an awful lot of time embedded with military units in a combat environment. And he wrote the book Tribe. And he talks about the fact that, you know, being in an army platoon, as an example, you know, extrapolate that to every service and its environment. But being an armed platoon is like creating a whole other tribe of its own. And the thing about post-traumatic stress from those that are part of that tribe is, you know, to coin a phrase, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You actually, the, the crazy thing about it is that, is that you experience some things that were traumatic and that you'd perhaps rather forget, yet you experienced it in a time and in a place with people that you never want to forget. And it's hard to unpack that. You, you can't, just have the bad memories without remembering the good ones and vice versa. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, this whole subculture and the impact of being a part of a tight unit like that or a tribe and reintegrating where you're not in that tribe anymore. Um, it really is about, to your point, to yours and Lisa's point that you opened up with, it's about that culture and just understanding that it's a little bit different. And, and you know, this Veterans Day, I mean, if you can just go a little bit deeper maybe than just saying thanks for your service to a veteran, you know, maybe put your arm around somebody and say, Hey man, I care about you. Just that simple. You know, uh, maybe, maybe that's the next level we all want to get to at some point. And the understanding that veterans are forced to kind of look at that dialectic style of life where good and bad coexist. They're not opposite ends of the spectrum. They're a lot closer together than, than we see. And when we experience that in, our, in civilian life, when people like myself who haven't don't have that military background, we have much more of a negative reaction, I think, to the, the idea of that, where you're able, you're kind of forced to accept it. Mm. Uh, and that makes, and that's hard. It's easy to ignore it. It's hard to accept. Yeah. Yeah. So again, thanks for your time. I will talk to you both very soon. And I appreciate everything and thank you for your service. I can't put my arm around you guys because you're, <laughs> you're far away. But right. you get the oh, virtual, virtual you get a virtual hug. And, <laughs> and I appreciate everything that you do. Uh, then and now. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lisa. All right, we'll see you.